Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I'm here to talk to you guys about strange stuff, crazy cases, and things that make you say, hmm, that was fascinating. In other words, if it's weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative, we're going to talk about it on this podcast. I'm going to start the show off today talking about an article that I saw in USA Today, and I don't know if you guys saw this one as well, but it was actually very sad to me. But the article is titled, Mother Who Injected Feces Into Son With Cancer IVs During Chemotherapy Was Sentenced to Seven Years. Julie Huang originally wrote this article along with Holly Hayes, and it came out last week. But an Indiana woman who admitted to injecting her son's IV with fecal matter has been sentenced. Tiffany Alberts of Walcott was sentenced Thursday to seven years in prison and five years probation for six counts of aggravated battery and one neglect charge, according to Marion County Prosecutor's Office. In September, Alberts was acquitted of an attempted murder charge. But in 2016, Riley Children's Hospital contacted police after Albert's son, who was 15 years old at the time, was being treated for leukemia and developed persistent and unexplained blood infections. Blood tests revealed organisms usually found in stool. A nurse at the hospital observed in surveillance footage Albert's injecting something into her son's IV bag. Albert's then admitted to investigators that she had collected her son's feces and injected it into his IV. She said she did it to get him moved to a different floor in the hospital where she claimed he could get better treatment. The infections forced doctors to halt the boy's chemotherapy treatment for almost two months, which increased his risk for relapse and lowered his survival rate. Well, I say she got what she deserved. She probably should have got more time, but it seems absolutely horrifying that someone would do something like that to their own child. But this does seem like it's a symptom of a topic that is becoming more and more common in our society, and that is the Munchausen by proxy syndrome which is a mental illness in which a parent makes their child deliberately ill in order to get attention for themselves or sympathy or whatever else may happen after the child becomes sick. And it's something that was virtually unheard of a couple decades ago and is now popping up all over the U.S. And this case is one example of that. I certainly hope that poor little boy that she was injecting feces into has made a full recovery and is now okay and is out of her clutches and can no longer be impacted by this woman because it just sounds absolutely horrifying. And it is definitely a sign of mental illness. I also hope that this woman gets some mental health treatment while she is in prison because she most certainly needs it. Today's main case that we're going to talk about, I actually got the episode idea from a Dateline NBC episode, and this is the case of Julie Griffith. Now, I had never heard of this case before I heard the episode on on Dateline NBC, but the case takes place in Paducah, Kentucky, which is the largest city in the Jackson Purchase region, and is located near Tennessee and the Ohio River, about halfway between St. Louis and Nashville, Tennessee. It is a great place for families and to raise kids and is one of the most populous areas in the state with beautiful little homes and well-kept yards. But in the middle of the night, one night, a fire broke out in the quiet suburb of Canterbury Hills. This fire destroyed a family. Let's hear their story. Keith and Julie Griffith lived in Paducah. They had for years and they had been married for 36 years. 
They were happy church-going people who played golf and were high school sweethearts. They had had two sons, Aaron and Zach. But once their kids left the house, Julia and Keith got busier than ever. They signed up for motorcycle classes, and they had golf foursomes with friends, and everyone in the community knew and loved them well. After early retirement from a local water company, Keith started working as a traveling salesman for lawnmowers. This was his second career. Julie spent quite a bit of time alone, and Keith seemed okay with this because the neighborhood was safe. They also had a great Dane named Cleo, so he figured keeping, leaving her at home with the dog was okay. It's a safe neighborhood. The dog will bark if anyone comes around. Everything's going to be fine. The children also reported that this couple often left their door unlocked because the area was so safe and Cleo was a good guard dog. Keith and Julie were absolutely thrilled when their son Aaron and his wife Allie had their first daughter. Julie was absolutely in love with her new granddaughter and they called her NASCAR nanny because when she drove her daughter-in-law to the hospital, she did it with so much speed that Allie nearly gave birth in the car. But... After the birth, Julie spent so much time with the baby and just doted on this little girl. And everything was great in 2013 to everyone looking in from the outside. Julie was loving her grandbabies. Keith had a weight loss surgery and had lost about 100 pounds. There was also a serious issue that popped up. Their son, Zach, announced that he was gay and this set his super religious parents into an argument that ended in the relationship with Zach being severed. Zach's relationship with his mom went from best friend to not talking at all, and by the fall, they were gradually starting to talk again. Then, in January 2014, the house at 307 Tudor Boulevard was on fire. Neighbors called 911, and the fire was bad, and it had smoldered for almost an hour before police could get inside to figure out what happened. So early in the morning the following day, they finally get into the master bedroom where they find the body of 55-year-old Julie Griffith. Everything around her had been so badly burned that much of it was unrecognizable. But on the floor, beside the bed... Within the rubble, they find a bullet, and this creates a mystery. Detectives also find Cleo the Great Dane and a second pet named Daisy, and it looks like the fire began in the master bedroom. Police then contact Keith, who was away on a sales trip. Friends called Keith as he was making the three-hour drive back home from Indiana. Keith was clearly in shock, and the kids were absolutely devastated. The family then gathered at the family home, and Keith walks the property with a friend, and he looks completely overwhelmed. How did this happen? Then... He starts to think about a new heating and air unit that had been installed just days before, and it had been and it had been put in right next to the bedroom. Everyone started to think maybe this was the malfunction, that it had been improper installation that had caused the fire. Then the coroner examines the body during an autopsy and they see bullets. And it is not smoke inhalation as initially suspected, but three bullet holes in Julie's chest that is the cause of death. 
they immediately call the sheriff, and this turns into a homicide investigation. Back at the house, clues are pointing to a killer. Was this a robbery? Was it a burglary? Then they began searching the house from top to bottom. But there are no obvious clues or footprints. Initially, the police suspect that this is a burglary gone bad because there had been some other burglary cases in the weeks prior in the same area. But then they also think that it could be someone Julie knew. The sheriff, meanwhile, didn't want to tell anyone that Julie was killed because they wanted to hold that close to their vest so they could kind of check out those around Julie and see if anyone was acting suspicious. Then they interview Julie's husband, Keith, and during that time, he seems super chill. He talks about the new air system and explains how his friend installed it and how he may have rushed and gotten a little bit sloppy. Then investigators ask about marital problems, and Keith claims there were none and says Julie was his best friend. And remember, they were high school sweethearts, so they had been together for quite a few years. They also ask where Keith was at the time that Julie died, and he says he was on a business trip, and they start to ask about what hotel he stayed in and if he left at any time. Keith admitted to leaving at 11 p.m. to go get a drink, then at 4 a.m. again to get a donut and a Coke. Keith also admits to having a gun, which he says he kept in his truck, but it was never fired or loaded when police inspect the gun. They ask then for Keith's clothes to test for gunshot residue, and they look at Keith's cell phone. As the detectives are looking at the phone, a text message comes in from somebody named Deanna James asking, did you make it home okay? And of course, this is immediately suspicious to police who ask who in the heck this woman is. Keith says it's a platonic friend and she is just like a guy to him. Hmm. Keith is then released from police custody while detectives continue the investigation. Receipts verified Keith's claims that he was at the hotel, which was three hours away from the home he shared with Julie. And they also confirmed that he was at the hotel when the murder happened because they checked his check-in and check-out times. Then detectives sit down with Deanna. This is a woman that had texted Keith. Did this woman have anything to do with the murder? Who would want to kill Julie? When they looked at this, they saw that she had no enemies and nothing made sense to family and friends. No one believed Keith had anything to do with the murder either. It was absolutely inconceivable and burglary was everyone's theory Keith loved his wife and doted on her. But as the police began to shift through the rubble, they found two safes full of valuables and guns, and all of it was untouched, as well as Julie's purse that was in plain sight. Then Deanna sits down with detectives. She lives in Indiana, which is a ways away from where they found Julie's body, but they drive there and they interview her. And immediately this woman contradicts Keith's story. She was not just a guy friend. Deanna and Keith had met a few years earlier at a vendor fair. She was a CFO of an international company and Keith was a lawnmower salesman. He picked up on her immediately and very aggressively asking her to dinner. He admitted he had two sons and an ex-wife. So he told her he was no longer with Julie, but he still had communications with her. Deanna and Keith had 
few things in common. She had kids too, but after a few dates, she can see that Keith clearly wants a relationship and she decides that she just wants to be friends. Now keep in mind as well, this was before Keith's major weight loss surgery. But Deanna and Keith did not see each other for a while, but then just a few months prior to Julie's death, he sends Deanna a flirty message saying she has cast a spell on him and he cannot stop thinking about her. Deanna at that point is in the process of a breakup and says, okay, she'll start seeing him again. He brags about his new body from weight loss surgery and... Deanna doesn't really sound super in love, just tolerating him and says he looks fine. But in the meantime, Keith is aggressively courting her with gifts, flowers, cards, dinners, and coach purses. She said all of this was very overwhelming at the time and something didn't seem right. He was too close to his ex-wife, even though he told her he was divorced. Deanna says the two were never intimate, but they were simply dating. Keith was house hunting, though, and talking long term about moving to Indiana to be together with Deanna. And now police see that Keith has a motive. But as they interview Deanna further and tell her that Keith was not divorced, she seems crushed. She doesn't know about the breakdown of his 36-year marriage with his high school sweetheart, and she did not know that murder was involved either. Investigators begin to believe that this woman had been lied to and deceived and that Keith had basically manipulated her. And they start to wonder how much he had lied to the police. They think back to Keith's questioning, and when they had mentioned to him that foul play might be involved, he didn't even ask or wonder what happened. But then they start to think, if Keith was involved, how had he done this from hundreds of miles away? They also see that he looked appropriately sad after Julie's death. And now, at first, the family is really upset that investigators are starting to look at Keith. But then investigators discover that Keith's alibi was not as tight as they initially thought. He claimed that he had only ducked out once or twice for drinks and snacks, but cameras caught him leaving the hotel on the hotel security videos at 11 p.m. And they expect to see him return in 15 to 20 minutes, but he does not return. Six hours and 34 minutes later, they see him on the camera. Then police begin to wonder if there is enough time for him to murder Julie, and they drive the route back to the house and clock it and find that Keith could have committed this murder in that time frame. If he was driving the speed limit and it took 20 minutes to commit the crime, Police believe this is ample time for him to have committed Julie's murder, and they arrest Keith and charge him with murder. He pleads not guilty, and the family still believes he has nothing to do with Julie's murder and that he is 100% innocent. Even Deanna's existence and involvement in this case did not cause the family to waver. They considered Keith's involvement with Deanna a mistake. Then the trial begins February 2015, but the, the case is mostly circumstantial though, and it revolves around that hotel video, which is the cornerstone of the case where they supposedly caught Keith in his lies, saying that he had returned and left when he had not returned and hadn't even changed his clothes. Security footage in the subdivision also shows an SUV just like Keith's pulling into the subdivision around the time of the murder. Additionally, 
An unknown intruder would not have gotten by Cleo. Everyone that knew her knew that she was an aggressive doggy. Then the police and prosecutors have to wonder why Keith would do this. And the prosecutor thinks he did it because he wanted to be with Deanna. Keith was house hunting and he had also made plans to bring her to Paducah and introduce her to his family. He wanted her to meet his dad. And additionally, there were two life insurance policies to Julie's name. And these two policies were purchased only eight days before Julie died. It is clear to prosecutors that Keith did not want a divorce. He did not want to have to split the money with Julie. But in Keith's defense, there was no DNA, no forensics, and no confession. So everyone that knew Keith believed there is no way that Keith did it and that he only had an indiscretion with Deanna. He just wanted to hook up with her and that Deanna's story was BS. They also said that the $250,000 insurance policies were not a windfall or even lots of money. Friends say that Julie actually nagged Keith to get it after a friend's recent tragedy. So she was the one behind the insurance policies. And then there's the SUV image in security cameras. Everyone on the defense team say that these images are too blurry and that it could have been anyone driving that car. Why would Keith drive a distinctive vehicle into the subdivision that he knew was on camera to kill his wife? It would just be too obvious. But where was he for those six and a half hours? Keith took the stand to testify. And this is usually a no-no on the part of defense teams because there are too many opportunities for the defendant to get caught up. But Keith's story was quite crazy. He basically said he was embarrassed and ashamed and he admitted his story was unbelievable, but he says he was trolling for women. He also said that since he became a traveling salesman, he had become addicted to sex and that he was out prowling for women in clubs and bars and massage parlors, but he could not get a hookup and no one can verify his story on this either because there are no witnesses that say they saw him in any of these bars, restaurants, or massage parlors. But Keith claims that he changed clothes so no one would recognize him on his booty call. Then, when no ladies took him up on his exceptional offer, he went down to the harbor and looked at the water and then drove back to his hotel. He claims he lied to the police because he was embarrassed and ashamed. He was douchey, but he didn't kill anyone. Then, there is a mistrial. Six hours into jury deliberations, they cannot make a decision. Keith sits in jail for another year waiting on a second trial, but by that point, the family started to doubt him. He had never gone down and stared at the water. The story seemed absolutely too bizarre to the family, and Keith starts losing support of his family, and Zach believes he did it. His very own son believes he did it. His other son, Aaron, is still on the fence but Aaron's wife thinks Keith is an absolute liar. Then, a few weeks before the trial, an inmate says Keith approached him and tried to hire the inmate to kill the lead investigator. 
Keith even went as far as to draw a map to the residence of the prosecutor and suggested a gun and said that he did not care if the family was around. This testimony was the final straw, and now his family all believed that he did it. His son, Aaron, then went to the jail and encouraged his dad to confess. Keith got a plea deal at that point. He was offered 30 years for murder and solicitation of the hit. He goes to court and confesses that he did it. He has no excuses. He does not know why he killed his best friend, but everybody wants to know why. How could he have done this to the wife he knew and loved for so many years? He had fooled everyone. Keith claims Deanna was not a factor and he does not know why. He says he was happy with Julie and he never considered divorce. He also claimed he was crying as he drove away 100 miles per hour, hoping to get caught after the murder. And now he only hopes for forgiveness from his sons. But meanwhile, the family is just heartbroken about this whole thing because they've lost both the grandmother and the grandfather. And the only thing that they can do now is to keep Julie's memory alive for the grandchildren. But Keith is now serving 30 years, and hopefully he will be spending the rest of his life in prison. Now, the second case that I have for today is also very similar. Now, I got some information on this, and I will post the information for both of these stories, my sources, in the show notes. But this next one is the murder of Michelle Young. Jason and Michelle Young lived a storybook life in Raleigh, North Carolina. They were both good-looking with great jobs, and they had a two-year-old daughter and a baby on the way. 29-year-old Michelle and 32-year-old Jason seem to have it all, but then a terrifying event happens and kills all of this. Young Michelle grew up on Long Island and wanted to get away and go to the South. She went to North Carolina State University in North Carolina. As a young woman, she was beautiful. She was outgoing, extremely smart. She was a cheerleader in high school and college. And then there was Jason. He was from Brevard, North Carolina, with lots of mountains and very, very different from Michelle. He was goofy. He liked to make people laugh. He really kind of did not seem as driven and ambitious as Michelle was, but the two ended up getting together and becoming a happily married couple. So then fast forward to November 3rd, 2006. It's early morning and there's a voicemail message. It all starts when Meredith Fisher, Michelle's sister, gets a phone call from Jason Young. He calls and asks his sister-in-law to go to his house and take printed images of purses, they were coach purses, off the printer Evidently, a coach's purse was supposed to be a surprise anniversary present, and Jason had been looking at eBay auctions. This was supposedly Jason and Michelle's third anniversary, and that date was October 10th, 2006. Now, keep in mind, this call to Meredith was November 3rd, 2006, which is quite a bit after the anniversary, so either he was shopping late, one month late, 
to this for this anniversary or something was off. But in the meantime, Jason was on a business trip to Virginia and he asked Meredith to get these images off the printer before Michelle could see them. Meanwhile, over at 5108 Birchleaf Drive, Meredith pulls up at about 1.15 p.m. and notices that the lights are still on in the driveway and that the gate is open. Now, this is very unusual because the gate is usually closed because they have a black lab that might potentially get out. Now, Meredith hears the lab inside whining and realizes that she did not have her usual key with her. So she goes around and finds that the garage door is broken and slides under and goes into the house. When she's in the garage, she notices that Michelle's Lexus is still there. She should have been at work. She was a financial specialist at Progress Energy in the accounting department. So why was Michelle's car still in the garage? Now, when she starts to go into the house, she notices the garage door is unlocked and Michelle's purse is on the floor. So Michelle must be in the house. Meredith calls out for her sister and gets no answer. And then at the very top of the staircase, she sees footprints at the top of the stairs. And these are red footprints. So immediately Meredith thinks that the daughter Cassidy has gotten into some sort of hair dye. She does not suspect anything foul play related and thinks, okay, the daughter Cassidy got into something and man, Michelle is going to be pissed. But then she looks to the master bedroom and sees that there are red streaks on the wall, the bed and the floor. And she sees her sister on the floor, a bloody mess, face down. Immediately, she calls 911 and she notices rustling under the covers as she's calling Then the covers come down and two and a half year old Cassidy is sitting there. She jumps up and grabs Meredith as Meredith is calling 911. Meredith reaches down and notices that the body is cold. She tries CPR, but rigor mortis has set in and this body is absolutely ice cold. So she has obviously been dead for quite a while. Now, at the time, Michelle was four and a half months pregnant with baby Ryland, and Jason was traveling in Virginia at a business trip. The police get there, and they cordon this off as a crime scene and notice that there are no signs of forced entry and that there's only blood on the top level in Cassidy's bathroom Blood is smeared on the walls, and Cassidy has obviously played in the blood and brought a baby doll to sit next to her mother's head, and there are bloody small footprints everywhere. So clearly, Cassidy was there during this killing, and she has been alone with that body for some time. Then investigators go downstairs, and they see there's no blood except for a small drop on the kitchen door. They do some testing and discover that all the blood is Michelle's. Meanwhile, in the bedroom, there is blood spatter everywhere. This has clearly been a very violent death, and the scene is horrific. Michelle has been beaten in the head badly. She has got teeth knocked out. There's blood splatter on the ceiling. Her jawbone is sticking out, and her head has been beaten with a blunt object many times. She is also dressed, and there are no signs of sexual assault. Meanwhile, police start looking around, and they see that there are two drawers of the jewelry box gone, and that the wedding and engagement rings were gone from Michelle's left hand. This was the only sign that anything was taken. But the medical examiner gets the body and looks at the time of death, 
At the same time, Jason is traveling. He has a meeting at 10 a.m. on November 3rd in Clintwood, Virginia. So he sells electronic medical software and record software. And with this business trip, he had left November 2nd, stayed at a Hampton Inn in Hillsville, Virginia, in the Western Mountains, and then he had moved on to Clintwood the next day. When police looked into his story, they saw that he was 30 minutes late to his meeting on November 3rd, and the meeting did not go well. He did not sell anything during that meeting, and then he had driven south through Asheville, North Carolina, another hour to Brevard, where he would be spending the night at his family home with his parents, with his mother and stepfather. At that same time, Jason pulled his Ford Explorer up, and his parents were waiting when he got there. Something was obviously wrong. His parents looked very anxious, and immediately he asked if this is about his grandmother. But they tell him that it is about his wife, and she is dead. They note that he fell to his knees and started sobbing uncontrollably. Now, after this happened, this is obviously a very tragic outcome and something that none of them expected, but they all head east on the five-hour drive back to Raleigh. Law enforcement calls him during this time, and they say they want to speak with Jason, but he refuses to speak with them. And when they pull up to Meredith's house, Meredith is Michelle's sister and Jason's sister-in-law, police seize his Ford Explorer, and he continues to refuse to talk to them and says he's going to speak with his lawyer first. But when this whole thing happens, Meredith is shocked that he won't speak. Meredith is the nanny for Cassidy and should have been for Rylan when the baby was born. But at that point, she becomes immediately suspicious when Jason refuses to speak. And she also says that his crying seems fake. Now, let's take a step back. We're going to talk a little bit about Michelle Marie Fisher. She was born in Suffolk County, Long Island. Her dad, Alan, and her mother, Linda, said that when Michelle was growing up in Long Island, she graduated from Sayville High School in 1995. She was very energetic, full of life. She was a cheerleader. Her mother was a junior high coach for her cheering. And then she went on to college at NC State. She got straight A's in high school and college. She made friends very easily. She was very happy and friendly. And she met Jason at her 23rd birthday at a Raleigh bar. Jason Young had graduated a few years before her, but he was goofy, silly, and wild. And he had knocked over Michelle's glass. And this particular action sparked a romance for the two. But people noted when they saw the two together that they were very opposite personalities. Julie had her whole life planned out. She had worked great jobs and she was into accounting and tax department. But Jason was not into planning. He was completely spontaneous. He was crazy. He was funny. He was wild. And he often did stupid things and got drunk Frequently, He also had a habit of doing some really obscene and gross things called dick tricks, where he would pull his pants down and perform in front of everyone with his own genitals, which sounds absolutely repulsive. 
In the summer of 2003, Michelle learned she is pregnant and the two were living together at the time. Now, Jason claims his reaction, or at least his version of it, was shock, but that he was happy to welcome baby Cassidy and that he proposed right away. But her friends say that Michelle called them sobbing and Jason had demanded she have an abortion or he would make her regret it and would never forgive her. Nonetheless... The two decided to get married as they are preparing for the baby, but Jason was not a planner. Michelle was, though, and her mother, Linda, helped with everyone. Jason's only requirement was that it could not be on a Saturday because he did not want it to interfere with football and that there must be beer at the wedding. He also had another requirement that there would be no blue clothes because nothing could imply that he was a Carolina Tar Heel fan. It had to be red if they were going to do colors. Michelle's mom thinks Jason is completely ridiculous. Linda is a high school teacher and she gets the summers off and she spends them with Michelle living with them and helping with Cassidy. But she is a stereotypical New York mama in her 50s. She has very specific views and she's very verbal. She, clearly, she thinks that Jason's not good enough for her daughter and he's not helping with the baby. She thinks he's immature, irresponsible, and that he does not pull his weight. Jason works from home at that point, but he didn't help with the baby at all. And he was always out of the house in basketball, baseball leagues, and all kinds of other things with his friends. On the other hand, Jason thought Linda was intrusive, nosy, pushy, and he absolutely hated his mother-in-law. But by 2006, Michelle was pregnant again, and she told Jason she wanted to convert the third floor of their house into a mother-in-law suite. In early 2007, Linda would move in and retire from her teaching job, but Jason said, there's no way in hell that I'm letting this happen, and this was a major argument between the two. Now, everyone knew that Jason did not want Linda around, but Jason claims he was excited for the baby because it was a boy. His own father had died, had died of cancer when he was just five, and Jason wanted to pass down his family name and have someone to play and teach sports with. The two had also recently prepared their wills. Michelle had advocated for life insurance, and the two had gotten policies. But interestingly enough... Michelle got a great policy for herself for $2 million and $4 million for accidental death. Now there was this major payout at play. Police, meanwhile, had issued search warrants for homes and vehicles of Jason Young. They also test the home with luminol, and they find two sets of shoe prints in blood. Michelle's death was confirmed that she had died of blunt force trauma because she had been beaten 30 times in the head and had defensive wounds on her arms and hands. Clearly, there was a struggle, and she had been strangled and beaten as well. Jason comes in and gives blood saliva and photos of his body and police can see that there is not a scratch on him there are also no signs of blood in the vehicle or the hotel in the hampton inn in virginia that he stayed at during this business trip he was on additionally it's a two and one half hour drive there had to have been some blood somewhere now they start to look as well at his stay at this hotel and notice that his keycard was only used at check-in at 1054 on November 2nd. 
cameras see him at the front desk, and then in the hallway, November 2nd at midnight, they see that he left. Then he is back in Virginia at 7.40 a.m. Police dig a little further into this and find a rock propping open one of the hotel doors in the direction that Jason was walking. And they also see that the camera in the location was unplugged at 11.20 p.m., one half hour after Jason checks in. 6.30 a.m. footage shows the camera pointed at the ceiling. So here it is. The camera's unplugged, and then it's pointed upwards. Jason has also changed clothing, according to the camera, and they could never find the clothes that he changed out of. Footwear, meanwhile, there were two distinct pairs of footprints found at the scene. The first shoe is a size 10 in cheap Franklin sneakers. These shoes were found at the Dollar General stores. Jason wears a size 12. The second pair of footprints they find were hush puppy orbitals in size 12. Coincidentally, Jason had purchased a similar pair a year and a half before in 2005. But he claimed when the police questioned him that Michelle had thrown the pair away. However, pictures at the hotel and at a Cracker Barrel restaurant that he'd eaten at show him clearly wearing the shoes. Despite this, the clothes and the shoes that he was wearing in the camera images have never been found. Then there's Cassidy, the daughter of Michelle and Jason, and this also provides a problem because this little girl had walked through and played in the blood. When Meredith found her in the afternoon of November 3rd, though, Cassidy was completely clean, and this was unexplained. So here it is. There's footprints in the blood. Cassidy has obviously played in this. She's made marks on the wall. She's put her little dolly next to her mom. She's walked through the blood. She's been all over the crime scene. And yet when the police find her on the afternoon of November 3rd, she is completely clean. When they poke a little further into this, they find in Cassidy's room a bottle containing red liquid. Keep in mind, Jason had previously sold pharmaceuticals including adult cough medicines. And some of these were very strong and caused sleepiness and drowsiness. Police look at and find pictures of Cassidy's room and they see these adult strength medicines. Jason would have known what they could do. And they suspect that he probably gave Cassidy medications to make her sleep. Then after the murder, he cleans her up and puts her in bed with the drugs to, f to be found the next day perfectly clean. So essentially, this little girl had been wandering around during this whole time where J while Jason is cleaning things up and getting himself situated. And then when he's finishing what he needs to do with the murder, he cleans this little girl up, gives her the drugs and puts her in the bed to be found. That is what they suspect happened. Meanwhile, though, Jason's claiming and still continuing to advocate that he had nothing to do with this. But police go down and investigate every single little detail of this because they figure that if Jason drove back from this hotel room during this missing period of time, that he would need to have stopped and gotten gas somewhere along the way because it was too long of a drive to have done on one tank of gas. So they start speaking to gas station attendants on the way back to the hotel, and they investigate every single one of them. 
In King, North Carolina, there's a convenience store and a gas station that recognizes Jason and his vehicle in the early morning of November 3rd. Evidently, he had buzzed the pump before the station was open. At that particular place, customers had to come in and show ID to get gas after hours. And Jason, or the person that was seen by the gas station attendant, was super pissed that he had to come in. He threw a $20 bill at this woman, and that's why she remembered him, because he'd come in and had been such a dick to her. So technically speaking, if you think about this, if Jason had just been nice... She probably wouldn't have remembered him, but it was because he threw such a tantrum that she remembered him. However, this evidence is still circumstantial. But the family of Michelle gets a personal injury lawyer to file a wrongful death suit. And they, the whole purpose behind this is to get a deposition to see if they could get Jason to talk, since he would not respond to any police requests. Jason defaults on the case and a civil judgment is entered. This judgment then declares that Jason was a slayer. Now, this is particularly important because North Carolina has what's called a slayer statute, which means Jason would be barred from getting any life insurance proceeds and that the $4 million would go to little Cassidy instead. Meanwhile, December 2009, the district attorney puts evidence to the grand jury and they indict Jason. They go to Brevard and they arrest him for murder. The DA is showing his cards at that point that all evidence amassed against Jason shows that there's enough for a trial for first degree murder. So June 2011, the first trial begins. This is kind of a crazy case because Jason has great attorneys. His attorneys are Michael Peterson's attorney from the Staircase Murder Owl case. Forensic evidence was the biggest factor here. There was no blood in the hotel or Jason's car. Cassidy was perfectly clean. The size 10 shoe prints cast reasonable doubt. Jason then takes the stand and claims that he loved his wife and they had an amazing life together, that things weren't perfect, but that he would never have harmed her. But then there are the numerous affairs that come up, including one that he was having at the time of the murder. Nonetheless, he claims he had nothing to do with her death and couldn't, and the police could not show any involvement. But then there's a mistrial. There were eight jurors in favor of an acquittal and four against. So in 2011, a mistrial is declared in this case. But prosecutors gather themselves up, and try the case again seven months later. Now, this time around, the prosecution focuses less on forensics and more on the mindset, the affairs, and the emotional issues going on between this couple. They also bring in a former fiancé who says she was attacked by Jason, and they really, really focus on the problems in this marriage, including the wrongful death in the civil case ruling, which they did not bring up during the first trial. In the meantime, both sides of this case had seven months to pour over the trial records. 
So the first time around, Jason hadn't spoken to anyone and they had no idea what he would say. So they couldn't really adequately prepare for the trial. But this time they poured over the testimony and found numerous inconsistencies. They played the video of the taped testimony and they questioned the inconsistencies and pointed out what they knew were lies. They were far better prepared this time. And in 2012, Jason was convicted of first degree murder. April 1st, 2014, the Court of Appeals threw out the conviction because the wrongful death civil lawsuit should not have been included. So the Slayer information that was used to in order to take the insurance money from Jason and make sure that Cassidy got it, and it should not have been used here, they said. This looks like there's going to be a third trial. So then the state Supreme Court looks at this case and they determine that the lawyer had failed to object strenuously in the right places and times to the evidence coming in. This meant that they had not objected to the evidence, the Slayer evidence from the civil lawsuit. So it was OK to use it now. Had Jason been deprived of effective assistance? This was the main question that needed to be answered. So they sent this case back to trial court. Then June 2017, the Superior Court judge hears this case and decides if there were mistakes made that were sufficient to grant a new trial to Jason Young. The judge determined that failures had occurred, but the the outcome would not have been changed by these. And, you know, Interestingly enough, he had these amazing lawyers that had been used in other really high-profile cases. So it was very, very unlikely that he was going to get a new trial based on that particular argument. But they determined he was not deprived of effective counsel, and the case punishment stands. It was affirmed in 2019, and Jason is still in prison as of this day. He has gotten a life in prison without the possibility of parole for this first-degree murder case at the Alexander Correctional Institution in Western North Carolina. Cassie has since been adopted and is being raised by Meredith, who is Michelle's sister, and Jason gave up custody. Little Cassidy is in the 10th grade now and seems to be doing very well. It was interesting, though, because his lawyers were super qualified, and now one is a judge, so clearly this argument for ineffective counsel was a bunch of BS. And when asked, Jason claimed he didn't respond to the civil lawsuit because he couldn't afford an attorney. That's why a default judgment was entered in that case. So there was no declaration of guilt or innocence. But the case actually hinged on that in the end was the introduction of that and the whether Jason had effective counsel or not. So he is clearly where he deserves to be. A jury found him guilty of this crime. This is essentially two very sad cases, and I found them familiar because both men were staying in hotels out of town at the time of the murder of their spouses. Both tried to cover it up, and eventually they were caught in a web of lies because both had left the hotel and driven long distances to go back to the scene of the crime and kill their spouses. So two very, very interesting cases. If you want to look more into these, you can check out the show notes where we have the referenced, um, where we have referenced the actual sources where I obtained the information for this show today. This is the point in the show where we say goodbye. 
So long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check us out on social media. We are at the BFD Podcast. Please shoot us an email, send us a DM, tweet at us. We'd be happy to respond back to you on any of that. But please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye.